coven if you find you want more missing witches and this strange magic in your life get our book we poured our heart and brains and minds and all the magic we could find into it we'd love to know what you think we'd love to read your reviews on amazon or goodreads and of course the old rate review and subscribe means a lot and support our sponsor at foxglove farm using offer code missing witches thanks love you bye you aren't being a proper woman therefore you must be a witch you must be a witch ever since we first started scheming this podcast project which we didn't really think anyone would listen to and was mostly an excuse to do the research we wanted we had a few made-up rules and principles a primary one was we were committed to researching and interviewing at least 50% witches, healers, magical people of color, because those were the stories most profoundly lacking for us and the ideas most profoundly and consistently and infuriatingly and explicitly as well as subtly oppressed and therefore also the most thrilling sights of new insight. We're looking for what we've been missing after all. We had a couple other tenets as well. We were focused on the stories and ideas of living beings on this earth, not fictional characters or deities. Though goddesses and archetypes and the ways their stories are used and distorted is fascinating, it wasn't at the heart of the questions that haunted us personally. We want to know the real people who have been thinking about what magic is. And we consider this work a project of feminist history. And as such, we're focused on women and people of marginalized genders. But the overarching and most repeated guideline was, and always has been, our podcast, our rules. <laughs> this sort of vaguely punk, occasionally hollered mantra has been a way for us to escape the constraints and anxieties that close in on you while you're in the midst of a strange hobby becoming an enormous labor of love. As Amy said recently in an interview we were doing with Yaro Magdalena of the Daydreaming Wolves podcast, we first met in the green room for a bizarro live show, and that creative space has shaped our collaboration ever since. We are perpetually in that moment, just off stage, summoning our sources and spirits, in the heart of all that limitlessness, that just-about-to-be-born potential for play and creation. Our podcast, our rules. Anyway, all of this to say, today I'm breaking one of the seeming rules of the Missing Witches podcast because after an unbroken streak of women and non-binary thinkers, I'm going to write a love story to the life and ideas of a white man named Scott Cunningham. And before you at me, here's the thing that draws me in. Cunningham was an out gay man who seems to never have written about that part of his life or identity. And there's a puzzle at the heart of that, which pulls at my heart. So if you're open, let's go winding down these twisting thoughts and classic missing witches deviations together. Inspired by Scott's gift, his enormous body of work, and by the heartstrings pulling quietly at the center of it all. think, even if you decide not to bring some aspect of yourself into the public forum, which sidebar is legit for all kinds of reasons, the one that's resonating most for me these days is Dr. Marina Magloire, wondering where her mind might go if she didn't have to spend so much time considering the fact of being a black woman, 
What might she offer to the great body of knowledge about the universe and the human mind if she could carve more space for those thoughts out of the demanding and these days often brutally exhausting reality of her particular human body? I'm paraphrasing, but the exhaustion and the question at the heart of it are huge and valid and may be part of what motivated Cunningham. What could he think about? While he was writing and researching nature and magic and that vast spectrum of unknown possibility, if he didn't need to always start and end with his personal sexuality, fair. And also, I think ultimately, these fundamental pieces of who we are inform our perspective and our power. The great thisness, the livingness of the universe, knows one piece of itself through us whether we explicitly bring each bit of our body's placement in the matrix of it all to the forum or not. Even if you don't want to talk about your experience in a marginalized body, the history and ideas and spiritual philosophies of marginalized people, and of all people, crucially includes your contributions. And for me, the aching question is always, what did you see? From your unique and glimmering expansiveness, especially outside the braces of total quote-unquote normalcy. The numbing totality of that normalcy is an illusion that we can help each other escape by being exactly the strange and lovely beings we are and being honest about what we see and hear. What do you know about the behemoth that it can't know of itself? And what did your vision and experience show you of the potential beyond the illusion that only allows for the existence of itself? Even just off-center from the hypnotic heart of hegemony, there is a different rhythm. Patterns of disruption and revelation. There are gifts to those who would reach for a life of liberation and joy that would save our raped and brutalized planet Hear the voices of ancestors alive and dead and yet to come and save the world. And gay voices are resoundingly, gloriously, crucially at the heart of that wild harmonic from beyond the edges of the mainstream. Especially in the 80s and 90s when Cunningham wrote, this was, remember, at the height of the AIDS epidemic. In the crosshairs of the demonizing, brutalizing, denigrating blame game that so many and in particular people of Asian and Pacific Islander heritage, live in the crosshairs of today in a world sick with COVID-19 and other epidemics. Because pandemics trigger fear and those who would profit from it. And in the 80s and 90s, the fear and violence and isolation fell really fucking hard on gay men and women. The violence continues and it's exhausting, but above and beyond it, Outside the logic of violence and trauma, I swear to God, etc., there is something else. Being shoved into a marginalized perspective can crystallize the unique vision that was in us all along. You don't owe any thanks to your trauma, and it didn't make you strong. You survive because you are strong and inherent in your brilliant resilience, there are clues and seeds to the resilience of all this vast, unfolding, delicate, fierce mystery that is life. 
And okay, that may seem really bombastic for a podcast about a guy who wrote popular books on crystal and gem magic and incense oils and brews. Or maybe not. You're a Missing Witches listener after all. Thank you for going down these strange trails with us. Without you, we'd just be out here poking at muddy streams and muttering to our dogs and toddlers and rocks and ourselves about the ideas we've been missing. And that would be a kind of magic too, but we like it better here with you. Witches, we're back to talk about Foxglove Farm. We love these subscription boxes, subscription boxes, subscription boxes, <laughs> and how full of magic they are. Yeah, recently you spoke once or twice or a million times about um, us being so lucky, having found like soulmate collaborators in each other, soulmate editors. And I think I would like to add Foxglove Farm to that list of soulmates, uh, a soulmate yeah. sponsor, who really is just like, it's hard to be anti-capitalist and still like eat food, as we all know. Yeah. So it was really important for us to find a sponsor that was like ethically sound, or at least like in line with our values. And Sammy is like that and beyond yeah plus the boxes are so cute and they support so many witches and so many artists it's just like a a wonderful little bit of self-care that is community care that you can do to go get yourself one of these subscription boxes and you're sponsoring and supporting missing witches when you do it so Get, get yourself a month, it. yeah. Get yourself a monthly present, and don't forget to use that offer code Missing Witches when you shop at foxglovefarm.com. The thing is, for so many of us who deviated down the occult aisles, Scott Cunningham was our first. We likely didn't know he was gay; that wasn't part of what he shared. But he made this other crucial choice that opened a magic and unexpected door to a way of relating to the living world, to ourselves, and to magic. And then he lived the craft and labor of that choice with incredibly generous dedication. He left 22 books in his short 36 years before he crossed to the Summerland in 1990, taken by AIDS-related cryptococcal meningitis. And the crux of the change he made, a change that unleashed ideas and philosophies and practices of nature-based spirituality out on white North America and ushered in the most popularity Wicca and witchcraft had ever seen, was that he validated and empowered the lonely. Solitary practice of the craft became accepted and possible and powerful in his hands. You didn't need to find a coven to allow you to be a Wiccan or a witch. No one was required to give you access or permission. He made a leap, a huge offering, and opened up a completely personal path to personal magic and relationship with the spirit of the world. And it changed everything. De Tracy Regula describes finding Scott's Book of Shadows and what it means. They write, In late 2008, Bill Krauss called me from Lululand, asking if there were any materials from Scott that might make a good book. After all these years, Scott's works were still finding new audiences, and there was appetite for more of his works with a new generation of the magically inclined. There were several things that came to mind, but they evaded me, mainly because confronting the loss of Scott is still something that's very painful for me to do. 
Bill was persistent in his request, but it seemed like this project was coming to a halt. Then one evening, looking at the cover of Whispers of the Moon, where I have it facing out on a shelf in a glassed-in lawyer's bookcase because the photo of Scott on the cover is my favorite, I realized that years before I had placed several notebooks and envelopes of Scott's materials on the same shelf behind it. It was all waiting, inches away from where I do my own work, yet I had forgotten until that moment that I had it there. I lifted up the glass door and slid it back and I reached at random for a tightly packed manila envelope. On it, in the hand that I knew so well, was the American traditionalist Book of Shadows, adorned with a pentagram and the comment that this was the manuscript to be used for copying to send to his students. It was the core of Scott's correspondence course, which he had offered to students before his works were published. Arguably the book of magic of a young wizard, drawn from his earliest experiences. The sort of thing you might expect a just maturing Harry Potter to have created for his extracurricular classes and advanced magic for his peers. He was ardent in his belief that Wicca needed an American expression. He felt that the largely British-dominated magical scene was due for a shaking up, one that embraced the seemingly more American qualities of equality independence, and a less restrictive hierarchy. A book of shadows that emphasized a greener, more natural magic that could be practiced in a simple and sacred way by virtually anyone. In that Cunningham book of shadows, which ends up being published by Llewellyn in 2009, Scott writes, Ever remember that the old ways are constantly revealing themselves, Therefore, be as the river willow that bends and sways with the winds of time. That which remains changeless shall outlive its spirit, but that which evolves and grows will shine for centuries. There can be no monopoly on wisdom. Therefore, share what you will with whom you will, but hide mystic ways from the eyes of those who would destroy, for to do otherwise increases their destruction. Mock not the ways or spells of another, for who can say yours are greater in power or wisdom? Take not one among you who serves to dominate you, who controls and manipulates your workings and reverences. Only within ourselves can true reverence for the old ones occur, therefore look with suspicion on those who would twist worship from you for their own gain. All should share equally in the workings, thus none shall grow contemptuous, of others in our way. Honor all living things, for we are of the stag and the salmon and the bee. So destroy not life, save it be to preserve your own. In Wicca, a guide for the solitary practitioner first published in 1988, which would become one of the most successful books on Wicca ever published, Scott wrote, When I began learning Wicca, there were few books, certainly no published books of shadows. Wiccan rituals and magical texts are secret within many traditions of Wicca, and it wasn't until recently that any systems have gone public. Due to this fact, few Wiccans wrote books describing the rituals and inner teachings of Wicca. Those outside the Wicca, or the craft as it is also known, who wrote of it could necessarily report only garbled or incomplete pictures. Within a few years of my introduction to Wicca, however, many authentic, informative books began to be published. 
As I continued my studies, both independently and under teachers I had met, I realized that anyone trying to learn and practice Wicca solely from published sources would gain a sadly unbalanced picture. Most Wiccan authors tout their own form of Wicca. This makes sense. Write what you know. Unfortunately, many of the foremost Wiccan authors share similar views, and so most of the published Wiccan material is repetitive. Also, most of these books are geared toward coven, group-oriented Wicca. This poses a problem for anyone unable to find a minimum of four or five interested, compatible persons to create a coven. It also lays a burden on those who desire private religious practice. Perhaps my true reason for writing this book, besides numerous requests, is strictly personal. I not only wish to present an alternate to staid, structured Wiccan books, I also want to return something for the training I have received in this contemporary religion. Please don't misunderstand me. Though this book's goal is a wider understanding of and appreciation of Wicca, I'm not proselytizing. Like most Wiccans, I'm not out to change your spiritual and religious beliefs. It's none of my business. Your beliefs are none of his business, and his personal life is really none of ours. But I love that he shares that his desire is personal. He was given something by his introduction to the craft an independence and a livelihood and a sense of connection to the earth, and he wants to share that. Not with those who would structure a religion or impose their will or use your power, but with those hatching their own individual relationships to a new kind of praxis. Praxis as in the actions by which a philosophy or theory is embodied. Praxis as in the craft. How we do what we believe and thereby make our beliefs manifest. Cunningham writes, a spell is a magical ritual. It's usually non-religious in nature and often involves the use of symbols or symbolic actions and words. It's a specific series of movements, use of tools and inner processes, such as visualization, to create a specific manifestation. A spell is a spell is a spell. Old spells are no more effective than new spells, but to manifest your need, the spell must be designed to do three things. A, raise personal power, and in natural magic, to unite it with earth power. B, program this energy through visualization. C, release the energy. This book is filled with spells of all types. Each is designed to accomplish these three things, but they need the magician's help. A spell is truly magical only in the hands of a magician. Once you've started practicing magic, you are a magician. Cunningham's book, Earth Power, was one of the first magical books I bought myself. At Missing Witches, we often say, books are spells. And I have Scott's phrase, a spell as a spell as a spell, echoing in my head now, holding natural magic and remembering what that book meant for me at that time. And it contains this other radical disruption of a common form of gatekeeping and also of commercializing the craft. He writes, The common everyday stones you see lying on the street or dig up in your yard, those tumbled up on riverbanks or beaches or lying scattered as if a giant hand threw them on the countryside, are possessed of powers. Simply because a stone is valuable 
does not lend it any special power. We first shared that quote on our Instagram even before we launched season one of the podcast. It was something so core for both of us because honestly, fuck all of the machinery of capitalism's attempts to take what is sacred and sell it back to us. Praying always on our fear and need and scarcity to turn us against each other and into ever more obedient consumers. When we first shared that quote, Amy summarized our feelings, writing, Here at Missing Witches, we believe strongly in DIY. Having stuff is great, but making or finding stuff is magic. Creativity is a spiritual practice. Plus, reusing and recycling things you already have around the house for your spells is hello pagan. We love and support witchy artisans and crafters and makers everywhere. And we encourage you all to get your coins and spend them how you like. But remember, witches... Your finger is a magic wand that holds more power than any athame. Your bathroom mirror is as prophetic as a crystal ball. A mud puddle is as much the goddess as is the ocean. The internet is the world's greatest book of shadows. The moon and sun are yours to behold for free. This club has no cover charge. No gatekeeping. Do as you will. Harm none. This club has no cover charge. Our podcast, our rules. This craft has no dress code and all our stones have souls. The cover to Scott's The Truth About Witchcraft Today features a casual 80s business lady with great blowing hair and excellent smiles. And the introduction reads, Candles gleam, incense smoke swirls, Robed figures chanting in a long-dead language whirl around a rustic wooden table. On it sit sacred images, a robust female wearing a crescent moon on her forehead, a horned male holding a spear in his upraised hand. All movement stops. A woman standing near the altar says, In this sacred space and time we call now the Old Ones, the goddess of the moon, of seas and rivers, the god of the rayed sun, of valleys and forests, Draw near us during this circle, and this is witchcraft. Two thousand miles away, a fifteen-year-old girl affixes a green candle onto a Polaroid photo of a friend. In the darkened room, she lights the candle. Her eyes closed, the girl visualizes her boyfriend's broken arm, surrounded by a purple light intended to quickly heal it. This, too, is witchcraft. The fifteen-year-old girl is me, and honestly, she's all of us going on instinct, caring for others, full of her own power, connected to the power of the world. At a time when pop culture was fetishizing and consuming teenage girls, Cunningham said, it's okay, be a witch. Everything around you can be part of your transformative magic. The power is in your praxis. Scott worked incredibly hard on his incredibly prolific writing, And he was a dedicated practitioner, only sharing information on craft he himself had explored and could speak to firsthand. Donald Michael Craig in The Magical Life of Scott Cunningham writes, I can't repeat enough how he could become so incredibly focused. The kitchen in our apartment was separated from his bedroom by the living room. When he was really focused on a writing project, he would occasionally take breaks and go into the kitchen to get a glass of water. On the way back to his room, he'd stop to talk for a moment and put his glass down. An hour or two later, he'd repeat this, totally forgetting that he already had a glass of water. He'd get another glass and set it down. Soon there were glasses all over. 
it didn't require me to be there for him to forget his glass. Sometimes if I came home at night, I'd have to be careful to walk through the maze he created by putting down half-empty glasses of water. I remember, too, that one time I found him in the living room with hundreds of three-by-five cards on the floor. What are you doing? I asked. This was during a time before there were computer applications that could easily index a book, and he was going through the laborious task of making an index for one of his books by hand. This was an onerous, time-consuming task, but for a non-fiction book he felt it was necessary. He took a break and explained to me exactly what he was doing. It was from that lesson I learned how to manually index a book. The first edition of my own Modern Magic was done that way, and I own my understanding of how to do it to Scott. Scott truly walked his talk. He had gone to a toy store and purchased several plastic toy monsters. Using magic, he transformed them into guardians, talismans of protection for our apartment. I saw a news report that stated the area we lived in had one of the highest crime rates in all of San Diego. However, we never had any problems with crooks or burglars, even though we sometimes left doors or windows open and unlocked. Perhaps the biggest worry we had was with the landlord. He was a fundamentalist Christian who also owned the business next door, a combination vacuum cleaner repair and gun shop. He would roll a large chalkboard covered with Christian messages in front of our apartment so people walking or driving by could see it. Scott called our living there, hiding in plain sight. Did hiding in plain sight have other meanings for Scott? I don't know, but it sure does for me, having been the witch in corporate marketing meetings, winking at the queer co-worker with the pentagram tattoo. I also love this description of Scott because I am perpetually the witch with water glasses everywhere, catching dreams, I guess, in every corner of my house, ready for whenever the kiddo decides she suddenly needs to stay hydrated. And I've also been that writer with a manuscript spread all over the floor, trying to figure out which pieces go where. Not indexing manually, thank God, etc. But my knees and back definitely feel a memory link to Cunningham and all you writers out there, down upon these marrow bones, as Yeats puts it, doing the mundane work, learning in the labor what Loretta the Death Witch reminds us, that there is no mundane. The praxis itself is a magic. And making the index weaves the web to the sources. Scott seems to have learned some of the tools and tactics of his practice from his dad, Chet Cunningham. With three children and a wife suffering from multiple sclerosis, he needed income. By his own count, over nearly five decades, he produced 375 published books, including westerns, thrillers, a motorcycle maintenance manual, and handbooks for sufferers of sciatica and irritable bowel syndrome. He occasionally wrote romance novels under the pseudonym Kathy Cunningham. He pretty much wrote whatever somebody would pay him for. So Scott learns about writing and its labor from his dad, and he learns something about magic and also about living through chronic illness and about love from his mom. Craig writes, Although Scott was born in Michigan in 1956, his family moved to San Diego in 1959, where, excluding brief trips, he lived for the rest of his life. He told me he'd always felt different, but it wasn't until high school that he saw his future. From a young age, Scott had been interested in nature and in herbs. 
1971, his mother gave him a copy of The Supernatural by Helen Williams. The book included Italian folk hand signs used to do such things as give protection and repel the evil eye. A few years later, a girl in his high school, whom I'll call D, recognized the signs and introduced herself. They became friends, and she introduced him to more magic and to witchcraft. And from this time on, natural magic, witchcraft, and writing became the focus of the rest of his life. Scott joined the Navy, but the extreme regimentation didn't agree with his nature. He performed some magic and achieved the result he desired, an early yet honorable discharge. His sister, also a writer, describes their childhood and her relationship with his writing in this way. One of his gifts was seeing into people, divining what they would appreciate. He was an excellent gift giver. Once he realized anthurium was my mother's favorite flower. That's part of what he'd give her for Mother's Day and her birthday, Christmas too. In hindsight, his thoughtfulness and protectiveness of my mother was very sweet. The year I turned 16 for my birthday, Scott bought the two of us tickets to see a chorus line in Los Angeles. He drove us up and we enjoyed bouncing around Hollywood, seedier in the 70s than it is now. He even took me to Capazio so I could get a couple pairs of point shoes. And the show? Outstanding, mesmerizing, absolutely breathtaking, and such a joy to share it with him. The ride home was filled with our chatter about the dancing and the songs. Scott and I moved out of the family home the month I graduated high school. In January of 1978, we shared an apartment on Orange Avenue for eight or nine months. Newly in love, I was rarely there, and when I was, Scott wasn't. We drifted apart as only roommates on separate schedules can drift. When I married and moved to Los Angeles, Scott remained a part of my life. Phone calls, letters the old-fashioned way, and visits. For him, success. Book sales came, and then the book tours. In between times, he'd retreat to Hawaii to recuperate and research. When I had a good job, I'd drop him a check in the mail. Surely his writing couldn't be paying the bills. And he'd always call with a thank you. Then March of 1990 hit, and news of Scott's illness passed along from his tour. We found out just as I was celebrating being three months pregnant with my first son. The terrifying turned into the mundane. Scott grew stronger again and wrote and traveled. We laughed and talked and grew closer than we had been. The baby was born and Scott kept a respectful distance, not quite sure what to do with such a little thing. But the disease stole him away. He grew weaker and angry at not having the time to finish everything he'd wanted to do. Before he finally moved home so my parents could take care of him, he invited friends over and gave away many of his books and things to people he knew would want or need them, sharing that last bit of himself that he could. He moved into my childhood room, his big iron bedstead taking up most of the tiny space around Thanksgiving in 1992. And when he died, in March of 1993, he'd fallen into a coma early in the morning. My mother held his hand and was there at his side when he finally passed that afternoon. I was once again three months pregnant. I missed the pagan gathering for him in San Diego. My parents didn't tell me about it. There wasn't another memorial ceremony. 
not one that the family had planned. So it was just the family scattering his ashes up in the hills behind the cabin at the Laguna Mountains. Fourteen years later, that seemed the appropriate place to scatter my mom's ashes as well. My private grief and regret over the lack of a more public memorial service to this day still hits me hard. It didn't seem right or fair, but I wasn't in charge. I spent several afternoons over the next few months sitting on the sand, staring out over the ocean, sometimes weeping, sometimes angry, but always in dialogue with Scott. I'd hear his laughter in the wind and the waves. And the Scott I was communing with, the Scott I missed, was the brother from my childhood, from those drowsy summer afternoons in the meadow, over the hill, and around the mountain from the cabin. Finally, though, I started reading. I must confess I'd never read his books until after he died. He never really expected me to be interested, I suppose. And in reading those books, I saw and grew to know the man he'd become, a deeper version of who he'd been when we were in the mountains as kids. The same, only more. My creative, sensitive brother had grown to be funnier, smarter, stronger, more compassionate, more tangible, more open, even while guarding his privacy. His heart and soul are in those books, a clear expression of his driving need to share what had taken him so much effort to learn. It shouldn't be that hard, he'd once told me to find a different way to worship, in such a natural way. Well, for those who want to, learning it shouldn't be such a difficult task. Scott has always been good at giving. The sharing of his knowledge with the rest of us is his ultimate gift. I find this all so sad and haunting. Why didn't the parents tell the sister about the pagan gathering? Why was there no family service or public memorial? Why don't we read each other's books sometimes till long after the loved one is gone? Why does a deep kind of silence seep and solidify between us? What are the unspoken layers of fear or awkwardness or shame? Why can't we find the words which will be the necessary spells to ease our hearts and minds back into loving touch with each other? Scott's sister Christine found what he had worked so hard to learn right where he'd left it, in the wind and waves and in the books. An answer to the question, does it have to be so hard? A more natural way of worship, of loving the universe and each other and all that's living, extended like an open hand to the lonely. In Wicca, a guide for the solitary practitioner, Scott wrote in words that feel heavy and prophetic today. Times are changing. We are maturing, perhaps too quickly. Our technology outpaces the wisdom to utilize it. Vast unrest spreads over the globe, and the threat of war looms over most of the more than six billion persons alive today. Wicca as a religion is changing too. This is necessary if it is to be more than a curiosity of an earlier age. The heirs of Wicca must point their religion firmly to the future, if it is to have something to offer coming generations. Since we have arrived at the point where one mishap could end our planet as we know it, there has never been a time when Wicca as a nature-reverencing religion has more to offer 
This book breaks many Wicca conventions. It has been structured so that anyone, anywhere in the world, can practice Wicca. No initiations are required. It is designed for the solitary practitioner, since finding others with similar interests is difficult, especially in rural areas. Wicca is a joyous religion, springing from our kinship with nature. It is emerging with the goddesses and gods, the universal energies that created all in existence. It is a personal, positive celebration of life. And now it is available to all. I don't know about you, but solitary practice is at the core of how I practice, and still it can feel hard to carve out time for. It feels self-indulgent in a way that coming together for my community doesn't. It's a bit like writing in the way that it makes me face my guilt and shame around spending time with my own thoughts and experiences and needs. Sometimes in writing, I just want to paste together brilliant quotes and bask in the wisdom of the web that's already out there and not get down upon these marrow bones again. But solitary practice and the real work of writing and healing calls on us to go into the lonely, into the layers of mind and experience that are ours alone, to look for the places that wound and haunt and shine, the places that the hegemon of ego cannot see so easily. When we make our art and rituals for ourselves alone, it's then we do it for our ancestors, and they come close, and we might hear them. In the solitary space of whatever is your art, your ritual, your most beloved praxis, following lanterns lit by dreams or song or poetry, unlocked by spirit writing or rambling gently across the keys to see what surfaces, we find, unexpectedly, pathways to each other. Sue Monk Kidd recently wrote, The surprise is always this. The deeper we delve into our own lives, the more likely we are to tap into a universal experience. We find the portal to everyone. The truth is, we are more lonely now than I can think we've ever been. We've spent over a year alone, or in small bubbles, walking within layers of fear, fear of unseen death on every surface in the air, lurking in strangers and in our loved ones. And the light is strange and distorted in here, in bubble land. And the dangers that we're already stifling are worse. For black, brown, indigenous, Asian bodies, queer bodies, trans bodies, women's bodies, the violence is choking, stifling. The voices of sick hatred are losing their minds on buses, pouring evil out all over. And those who would profit from delusion are hard at work, casting chimeras of blame while they increase their hordes. To be gay is still dangerous all over the world. And this was and remains tied to the history of colonization and control over all our individual rights to our bodies and minds. 76 countries around the world maintain discriminatory LGBTQ laws. Britain exported its sodomy laws to the empire, where many remain in force. Human Rights Watch has reported these laws are routinely used for blackmail and extortion in settings as diverse as Kyrgyzstan, Jamaica, and Uganda. Such laws contribute to a climate of prejudice and hostility in which violence occurs with impunity. The passage of the anti-propaganda laws in Russia led to a peak in violence against LGBT people. 
In Nigeria, the immediate effect following the enactment of draconian legislation was mob violence against gay men. The law in these places means that LGBT people must live in a shadow existence under the threat of violence. Sodomy laws have historically been used for political purposes. In France, in 1307, King Philip IV brought sodomy accusations against the Order of the Knights Templar and dissolved it. The reason? He was heavily indebted to the Knights at the time. In England, King Henry VIII promulgated the Buggery Act in 1533, then promptly accused Roman Catholic monks of sodomy and used that as an excuse to confiscate their monastic lands. He also disposed of his opponent, Lord Hungerford, by executing him for sodomy in 1540. Such tactics are still in use. With a push for more limited language on, quote, the family, and an emphasis on the rights of the family as an entity rather than the individuals who make up the family, the Russian government and its allies are pushing for a concept of human rights that protects the group over the individual. This rhetoric and practice creates a false dichotomy and pits tradition against human rights. LGBT rights are the wedge issue but at stake are the basic principles of international human rights law, that human rights are universal, inalienable, and indivisible. What seems distinct about this particular time in our history is the way in which the rights of LGBT people have become a lightning rod for competing visions of the world. So we're called now to hold up a vision of the world that protects the individual, the lonely, those without family as well as those hiding who they really are, while with their families, those in danger in their own homes, and we must use all our powers to call down protection for each other. And though this calling is crucial now, it's not the first time that sexuality and gender identity have been used as an excuse to control populations and exterminate alternative philosophies. The history of hermetic philosophies and diverse ideas about the divine is also a history of love and sex. The first allegations of homosexuality against the heretics was made in 1116 concerning the Henricians. From that time onward, we hear more and more frequently that the heretics copulated vir cum viris, man with man, and femina cum feminis, women with women. In 1209, Pope Innocent authorized the crusade against the Albigensians in France, a policy which resulted in near total genocide throughout the southern part of the country. And by the time the Inquisition would finish its work in the 17th century, several million heretics and homosexuals had been burned at the stake. Heretics went underground, and when Wicca surfaces, it claims to be drawing on texts and beliefs enculturated in part from that tradition. But the simpler form of religion that Scott longed for, one that would enshrine our rights to love and find pleasure where we will as long as we harm none and are unencumbered, isn't born into the world complete in Wicca. Scott didn't triumph a form of Wicca he'd inherited cut from whole cloth. That's why he emphasizes our right to solitary practice and constantly reasserts that we've got to think for ourselves and reject those who would demand obedience. Because let's be honest, Gerald Gardner baked some insidious homophobia into the craft. And even after Doreen Valiente and others resoundingly rejected that rotten inheritance, as we talk about in our book, Missing Witches, available now. Other forms of danger lurked. Trying to right the balance against the weight of generations of a male god and male dominance, Wicca cherished the divine feminine, which, alleluia, but then in many places tipped over to a gender essentialism 
that we also talk about, that again demeans the real lived experience of individuals who knew in their bodies and spirit that their existence is beyond cis-hetero boundaries, or that their experience of gender wasn't one they were born with, wasn't located in their organs, but somewhere else, that who they truly are is beyond. There's so much courage and magic in this, but Wicca hasn't always made a space for it. I think Scott does, though. Though much of his writing calls out to the goddess and the gods, there are doorways and portals he left that can help us. Tired from the struggle of fitting all our powers and desires and characteristics into too tight and overused boxes. Help us expand into something infinitely more. He calls out to the old ones. And his origin story, his prayer begins where so many of them do, in a place and with a power greater than the dividing binary of the world that came after. In the name of Dryton, the ancient providence, which was from the beginning and is for eternity, male and female, the original source of all things, all-knowing, all-pervading, all-powerful, changeless, eternal. He also wrote, never become rigid in your beliefs or practices. Deep inside you will find your god and your goddess, and you will know their names and forms. If you are solitary, begin by living in the cycles of the sun and moon, i.e. by the seasonal celebrations, sabbats, and the lunar phases of full and new moon, esbats. Even alone you can assume the roles of priest and priestess and learn to experience the essence of those energies that are the tides of life. The time will come when you will know the presence of both the masculine and feminine forces we know as God and Goddess, whose divinity lives within our body, our feeling, our mind, and our spirit, and who live everywhere. You can speak to them, inwardly and outwardly. You can see them in your heart and in your space. You can feel them and know them, and in your spirit, you can be with them. If you prefer, you can perceive and receive their divine presence as singular rather than dual. We can't define the creator in any other way than to know the divine is everywhere at all times and is the source of all that is. There can be no monopoly on wisdom. Never become rigid. You can know the gods and goddesses both in your body or know them as one the ancient providence, or as a multiplicity beyond counting. You can be your own priest and priestess and healer. Even in danger and isolation, you are a being of light and power, and our waves of dust and sound and love and light reach for you and hold your cherished and hallowed and holy body exactly as it is. I want to imagine we are at a public memorial for Scott Cunningham with his sister and brother and parents and your siblings and parents too, all healed and holy. The sicknesses of the world and memory that's made us wiser and kinder and all of us unafraid to hold hands and hold each other's space. Through our bubbles and spikes and wounds shine the spark of the divine. Generations of ancestors and old ones hold us. Our collective power radiates out to answer the call for a more simple faith, 
one that loves and is one with the great livingness of it all. A faith that has been our leavening, letting us rise and uplift and also intertwine. A praxis that unfurls our unimaginably radiant uniqueness and individuality and also nurtures the most profound and essential definitions of what it means to be a family. I am imagining this because I need to and because imagination is a creation spell that calls forth new worlds. In this moment, in the dark between our ears, it is a seed we plant that becomes real. We're there together, on the shore with Scott and all the missing witches and the witches found, and all the people who don't identify as witches but are ripe with world-changing power anyway. And we are honoring all those who poured their lives out in service to the water, the trees, and each vulnerable and beautiful life. There can be no monopoly on wisdom. It's just not possible. It moves like water and life and breath. And it belongs to you, even when you are alone. Hey friends, if after listening you find you want a little coven loving in your life, go to our sponsor, Foxglove Farm. Use offer code MISSINGWITCHES to get some of that handmade, ethical, awesome, witchy goodness in your life. Send us your reviews on whatever podcast service you use. Um, and if you want to read the book, gosh, we'd love to send it to you. So find it, tell us what you think, um, and share your thoughts on Amazon or Goodreads. And, and yeah, see you out there. We love you. Be safe. Bless if I can be.